It is Thursday, September 26. Uh, this is Doug Thornell, and I'm joined by my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod. Good morning. And um, this day will likely go down in the history books um, for uh, what is going on with the President of the United States and his actions as it relates to Ukraine and um, using his influence to uh, dig up dirt on his political opponent, undermining our national security. And at this time, we're recording it, recording this podcast in the morning, and uh, uh, the DNI is testifying before the uh, Intelligence Committee. Um, and typically, this show focuses a lot on the presidential campaign as it relates to the battle for the Democratic nomination, and we will definitely be talking about that today. Uh, and we are joined by um, a, a great guest, uh, and we're really honored to have him here, and that is the DNC chair, Tom Perez. Uh, Tom, welcome to the Electables. Thank you for having me. It is a sad day for our democracy, and I want to applaud Adam Schiff and the work he's doing, he and others on that committee, to expose uh, just an absolutely egregious example of abuse of power, not the first and not mm-hmm. the last that will be exposed. But it is a a very, very uh, sad day for democracy. It's a sad day for me as someone who worked at the Department of Justice under Republican and Democratic administrations as a career prosecutor, as a political appointee, to see yet more evidence of an attorney general who is uh, not the people's lawyer, but the president's lawyer. And uh, that... I love that place. I always will because I spent 12, 13 years of my life there, and it breaks my heart to see what's happening under this attorney general. Yeah, and Tom, on that note, I mean, you do have a, a very specific level of expertise because you are, of course, the mm-hmm. Democratic National Committee chair, but you also worked at the DOJ for, for a number of years. Um, so Pelosi, is, as we all know, obviously, is pursuing mm-hmm. an impeachment inquiry. Can you talk to us about the severity of Trump's recent actions that led to this, especially through the lens of a former DOJ official? And a couple things to keep in mind there. The uh, first of all, I think it's important to understand the context of the historic bipartisan support for Ukraine. What's going on in Ukraine is absolutely indispensable for an average person's understanding of what this president did to abuse power. Ukraine was attacked by a foreign adversary, Russia. They annexed part of Ukraine. They are at war right now. There are Ukrainian citizens who have been murdered by Putin and his thugs. That is what is happening right now. For years leading up to 2017, there was strong bipartisan support in the United States to assist Ukraine to provide military assistance, to work with our allies in the region, with our NATO allies, to impose sanctions on Russia, again, in a bipartisan fashion, because they annexed illegally part of Ukraine, and they have been killing people, they have been thugs. So it's important to understand that bipartisan consensus. And what's happened recently, the foreign aid that was given to Ukraine is not new. It's what's been done on a bipartisan basis, as I've said multiple times. But what we have here that happened is 
as we now learn from a courageous whistleblower, that this president used the hammer of foreign aid to effectuate what I believe uh, Chairman Schiff correctly called a, a simple shakedown, mafioso style. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the complaint, uh, the Ukrainian leadership was led to believe that they would have to, these, these are in quotes, play ball on the president's requests in order to simply have a phone call with the president. In other words, if you want this aid to continue, you need to dig up dirt on one of my political opponents or one of my potential political opponents in the 2020 campaign cycle. That's what happened. Now, what listeners, I think, need to understand is there's been a term that has been used that is not a precise term, and that is transcript. You know, when I used to prosecute cases, I had FBI agents with me, and we would interview witnesses, and they would produce what was called an FD-302. That's a summary of the witness um, interview. It is not a transcript. When you think of a transcript, I think of a stenographer who typed in word for word. That's not what happened when I was a prosecutor. That's not what generally happens when a president has a call with a foreign official. You will have one of your senior people or multiple senior people there, and they will be uh, gathering notes on what took place. But they are we don't have a stenographer there. What also is remarkably problematic about this case is not only the crime, but then the cover-up. Because in the aftermath of this call, rather than uh, process it in the normal course of business, they put this information on a very, very sensitive computer system that is ordinarily reserved for highly classified national security information. This is politically sensitive information that could hurt the president because Mm -hmm. it is evidence of a shakedown. That's not the purpose of this computer system. So what we have here is both an abject abuse of power followed by a really, frankly, um, amateur uh, cover-up. And one of the questions that I have, uh, Adrian and Doug, is how many other times has this taken place? Did he have conversations with the Saudis? Has he had conversations uh, with... Uh, Netanyahu. What other sorts of illicit promises and quid pro quos have been made? This is such a clear example. And I applaud the whistleblower. And I'm waiting for people like Chuck Grassley. When I worked for Ted Kennedy in the 90s, Chuck Grassley fancied himself as the parent of whistleblowers, (laughs) the guardian of whistleblowers. The silence, Mr. Chairman Grassley, is, is currently deafening. Uh, We need someone to step up. This is not about right versus left. This is about right versus wrong. And I have such sympathy for that leader in in Ukraine because they were caught between a rock and a hard place. And so I I bring all of this up because you'll hear about transcripts. And and don't think of a a transcript in the traditional way. And you're going to – this is really when it comes down to it. Um, not that complicated. It's it's horrific. It's very simple, actually. But it's very simple. It's called a shakedown. It is a leader of the country putting his own 
personal interests ahead of our national security. And this is not the first time. This this president should be helping farmers who are facing bankruptcy. He should be helping our people with pre-existing conditions to keep their health care. But he's so uh, consumed with helping himself. That's what he is about. Him, him, him. It's not about the American people. And, and this is undermining our democracy. And this is why I applaud Chairman Schiff for what he is doing. And I applaud Speaker Pelosi for what she is doing. Let the facts come out. That's the oversight responsibilities of our Congress. I'm going to go uh, to the this. There was a, and you're right, what we read yesterday was not a transcript. It was a summary of some sort of a, a call that the president had. Um, in there, there was a lot, obviously, he mentioned multiple times um, asking for a favor from I think the, seven times, right? If mm-hmm. my memory serves me, Ukraine mm-hmm. president uh, to dig up dirt on dirt on one of his political opponents. There was another piece in there that um, is important to me, uh, and I, Adrian, I'm sure you, because you're the DNC chair. Mm-hmm. I was at the DNC in 2016, and Adrian was on the campaign in 2016. <laughs> he seems to imply <laughs> Trump. He Trump implies that Ukraine. <laughs> was responsible for the hacks of the DNC and John Podesta. There's a it's sort of, you know, stuck in there, but he mentions CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike was a firm that the DNC hired to help with our uh, cybersecurity in 2016. Uh, and there's this conspiracy theory floating around on the right that in fact it was Ukraine that was uh, that did the hacks, and they sort of set up Russia. So to me, what he is trying to do in here is unbelievable. He is trying to get the Ukraine government to in, to ex, to basically exonerate Russia and Vladimir Putin for hacking our elections by by finding some server that that he believes is in. <laughs> Ukraine. I apologize for laughing because it can't make this stuff up. It's it's not a laughing matter, but you 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 can't make this stuff up. And if we weren't, I mean, just can you go on as the chair of the DNC, just as in terms of this this idea that Ukraine was behind hacking? Well, that's sure. I mean, let's just debunk that once (laughs) and for all. Well, let's do it again and again and again because that's what they're going to continue to come back to. Uh, The indictments from. Director Mueller are very clear. Uh, The DNC was hacked. The entity that was leading the hack were officials at the highest levels of the Russian government, the GRU and others. And it was an attack on the DNC and it was an attack on our democracy. There was an attack on John Podesta. And the purpose was to help Donald Trump in his 2016 campaign. The only person who doesn't accept that reality is Donald Trump and his team. And, and it was just truly laughable to me to see the transcript and, and see references to the server. And I, I believe now we need to send forensic teams all across Ukraine to find the actual hard drive because it was apparently taken from the DNC and it's now in Ukraine. Wow, that's remarkable. It's insane. Um, I mean, we... The, the, there's so many things that are on the ballot in a little over 400 days. Truth is on the ballot. This president has his reckless disregard for the truth and his constant efforts to undermine uh, the fourth branch of government are so harmful to our democracy. 
the notion that the president of the United States was talking about a hard drive located in Ukraine. It's is crazy. Beyond laughable. And he was holding in if in he was holding up aid in, unless he got a favor from the Ukraine to to somehow exonerate a country that is attacking Ukraine. Four hundred million dollars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was one of the favors. The other favor was digging up dirt on Biden. Yeah. So, I, I uh, you know, I think to, as the chair of the, the DNC, one of the faces of the party, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I think is really important, I think Adrian would agree with me, is just like the Mueller thing. I, I, I personally think that obviously there was a lot in the Mueller investigation. Should, there, you know, it was, a, it was a real investigation that needed to happen. It got complicated because it went on for a long time, and people and voters just had a hard time understanding how it impacted them. And I think here we just got to keep this very simple, as you said. This is a simple shakedown. This is an abuse of power. This is so unfortunate because there has been a long history of bipartisan support for the people of Ukraine who were attacked by Putin. People in Ukraine have been killed by Putin and his henchmen. There's bipartisan support to help them. And that bipartisan support now has been put in jeopardy by this president. The aid should have gone out months ago because there's no objection in the Congress to the aid. It did not go out because the president wanted to use it as a bargaining chip. You will only get this aid if you first talk to Giuliani and Barr and others and dig up dirt on an opponent right. and, and, and find the server. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what it's about. Folks, we don't want a president who's looking out for himself. We want a president who's looking out for us. We don't want a president who believes that he is above the law. We want a president who understands the rule of law. We are a nation of laws. We are not a nation of autocrats. And he seems to have such a affection for North Koreans leader in, in the Philippines and dictators. and dictators. And he seems to have such an aversion to democratically elected leaders. Mr. President, Canada is our friend. Russia is not. Like we need some 101 lessons. Yep. And Ukraine was attacked by Russia, by Putin. Stop being Putin's poodle. Stop looking out for yourself. Right, right. No, you're exactly right. And I think, you know, Doug, you raise a really important point and that you touched on too, um, chair, Chairman, is the fact that the Russia situation did become very complicated. I think for a lot of people who are not following the news 24-7, there was a lot of confusion. Even for us who do, Even for it was us confusing. who do, it was, con- it was very confusing, which is why I think this is very important on this point in this situation with Ukraine to keep it very simple, to keep the message very focused on the fact that he asked a foreign, well, a foreign ally to an extent to meddle in our elections. I mean, that is an impeachable offense right there. Chairman, one last point on impeachment, um, since we are sort of talking about messaging here. So, you know, we've got sort of two tracks, right? And assuming that the impeachment process does go forward and sucks up a lot of the media oxygen, sucks up a lot of the, um, you know, earned media space in, you know, as we also have the primary election season going on. How do we handle this? How do candidates handle this? I mean, you know, if you are running for president, if you're on the campaign trail, do you focus a lot of your message on impeachment or do you go back to those kitchen table Mm -hmm. issues that are focused on why you're running, healthcare, jobs, and the economy? I mean, how do we as Democrats sort of make sure that our strong candidates who are running for president don't get lost in all of this? 
Well, I think we can walk and chew gum as a party. We have before, and we can continue to do that. We want a president who's looking out. If, if I'm in uh, Scranton or Wilkes-Barre or um, Appleton or Grand Rapids or Detroit, Philly, wherever I am across <clears throat> America, I want to make sure that my president is looking out for me and people like me. I want to make sure that the president has my best interest at heart and our nation's best interest at heart. And we have a president right now. I want If I'm a farmer in Milwaukee and, and, and Wisconsin is the farm bankruptcy capital of the United States, the president had the audacity about two months ago to go to Wisconsin and say, and I quote, farmers are over the hump. Farmers are over the barrel in Wisconsin. Uh, dairy farmers in particular. And the thing that has resulted in an emerging suicide crisis among farmers in Wisconsin is tariffs. This president, on all the issues that matter most to people, he's making matters worse. And uh, for people with pre-existing conditions, he's making matters worse. For people who need insulin, he's making matters worse because he's in bed with the pharmaceutical industry. For our national security, which is the fundamental role of this president, he is making matters worse by putting our national security at risk because he's putting himself over uh, our national interests. So we need a leader who's going to look out for us on all those day-to-day -day issues and look out for our democracy, make America proud again. And this is a president who has embarrassed us. We are less safe because of this president. We are less healthcare secure uh, across this country. Farmers are taking it on the chin. Immigrants are being demonized. This divide-and-conquer approach is not who we are as a nation. And so I'm confident that our candidates can walk and chew gum, can articulate that we're the candidate that's going to fight for your health care. And what's this guy doing? He's on the horn with the leader of Ukraine trying to shake him down. Why don't you start working for me, Mr. President? That's what I hear from voters across this country. This president is singularly ineffective at everything he's doing. He should stop tweeting, stop thinking about himself, and start thinking about other people. He's constitutionally incapable of doing that. And I think the American people are seeing that. And our candidates can articulate the need to fight for good health care, fight for good jobs, fight for women's reproductive health, and fight for our democracy as we know it. Because he is undermining our democracy as we know it. Tom, I think the DNC needs to make some baseball caps that say, make America proud again. Yeah. <laughs> Could raise some small dollar donations that way. There you go. Um, so let's uh, pivot a little bit because um, we could talk about Trump until uh, the end of the year here and all his craziness. Um, at the uh, beginning of the week, uh, the DNC made some announcements about the next debate or the debate in November. Um, do you want to go over uh, the new criteria that was laid out for the candidates running for the nomination? Sure. Uh, throughout our n Democratic uh, primary process, our North Star has been very clear. We want to make sure that everybody gets a fair shake. Uh, we want to make sure that we are very transparent in articulating our rules, that we give the candidates ample time to get on the debate stage. And in an un uh, unprecedentedly large field, that everybody at the end of the day uh, feels like they got a fair shake because they, in fact, did get a fair shake. And so we have been very uh, deliberate uh, and transparent about our thresholds. We started out at 1% or 
65,000 uh, grassroots donors. That had never been done before. Uh, and we did that because, again, we wanted, uh, we, we wanted to make sure that people who didn't have national name ID but were incredibly qualified had an alternative pathway to make it to the debate stage. So that's what the criteria was for the first uh, two debates. And then for September, October, we were at 2% and 130,000. And again, the closer you get to the primaries, you got to show that you're making progress. So now for November, uh, we've established a threshold of 3% in uh, four polls, no less than four polls, or alternatively, and, and uh, this is again a function of some of the studying we've done from previous campaigns, 5% in uh, two polls in one of the four battleground states. And the reason we did that is because what we have seen in the past is there have been some candidates who have chosen to focus uh, the entirety or the bulk of their energy on one state, trying to uh, use that to catapult them into um, uh, success. And there has been there are examples of uh, where that is proven effective. And so... Those candidates who've chosen that pathway, we wanted to make sure that uh, we gave them an opportunity. So if you have 5% in uh, two polls in one of those early battleground states, you can get to the debate stage. And then finally, 165,000 uh, grassroots donors. So uh, folks who've made it already have gotten to the 130, so they need to get another 35,000. And again, uh, if you're going to win this campaign, you've got to connect with the grassroots, and I think that's critically important. And I've met a number of people who've said to me, it was really neat to watch the debate and see that my $10 or my $20 or my $1 that went to that candidate, they made the debate stage. They, they feel like they're part of it. And, and I think when we have motivated voters, uh, that's how we win. So uh, that's what we've done for November. And uh, we've communicated it clearly to the candidates, and we'll see, we'll see who makes it. So, Tom, the fourth debate, speaking of, is taking place in Ohio, the, the Ohio suburbs, a place that, of course, Hillary Clinton lost by a significant margin in 2016, but that Barack Obama won by a narrow mar margin in both 2008 and 2012. Do you think Ohio is a state that Democrats can win this time? Absolutely. Uh, I, I have a lot of faith in Ohio. I, one of my closest friends in the Senate is Sherrod Brown, mm -hmm. uh, who in many headwind elections uh, where Republicans have gone after him, he continues to win. And where we are holding the debate in Ohio is a really example, a really good example of where the progress and opportunity exists, not only in Ohio, but in a lot of states. Uh, we will be at Outerbein uh, College, which is oh, about an hour or so from Columbus. And if you look, uh, when George uh, w. Bush was running in 04. He won that area of the state by a double-digit margin. And then mm -hmm. you move to uh, 2016, and Democrats are winning that area. And so you see a real transformation. Uh, in the 2018 cycle, we did well for a number of reasons, including but not limited to the fact that uh, Democrats are competing very well in suburbs and exurbs across America. I was just in Virginia a couple days ago. We've got critical state house elections and, mm -hmm. and we're going to take over the state house of delegates and the state senate there i predict in uh, less than 40 days 45 days and that's because you look at places like prince william county uh, these these outer ring suburbs in virginia that used to be solidly republican are now becoming 
uh, incredibly democratic. And, and so that location in Ohio, to me, is a real illustration for us of where we have opportunity. We're competing, obviously, in places like Cincinnati and Cleveland and Columbus and Dayton and mm-hmm. uh, Toledo and uh, Youngstown, et cetera. Uh, but in addition, I think we have the opportunity in places like Ohio to uh, compete in these areas where you know, folks have the same set of concerns, values, hopes, fears. You know, they want they want to make sure that the president's looking out for them on health care. I mean, this this president went to Ohio repeatedly and said there will never be a plant closure. <laughs> there will, and I quote, "There will never be a plant closure." That's what he said in the run up to the 2016 election. There've now been roughly 100 plant closures under his watch in Ohio. And, yep. you know, and, and, and voters understand that it was the President Obama and the Democrats who saved the auto industry in 2009. The Republicans said, let the auto industry die. We saved the auto industry with no help whatsoever mm-hmm. from the Republicans. And now you have a president who made promises in 2016 and he broke those promises. So I get back to what I said before. This president has made the lives of people in the Buckeye State worse, lives for people with pre-existing conditions, lives of folks who used to work at the uh, Chevy plant in Lordstown. That shuttered. That was generational employment for um, folks in that area. It's gone. And this president lied to them. Well, and I'm glad you raised that, Tom, because I think sometimes Democrats struggle on how to talk about the economy when the unemployment rate is under 4%. But what you just really highlighted is that people are not always working in jobs that they want to be working in, right? A lot of people were, to your point, working, you know, at auto, at an auto factory um, in a job that they really loved, third, fourth generation, and now they're, you know, working at the Walgreens, checking out, or they're doing something that is not, they're not using their skill sets properly or effectively, and they're working in a job that, that, that frankly, is, is beneath their, their skill level. Seven and a quarter an hour is not enough to feed your family. You've got Correct. a president who his his chief economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, said we shouldn't even have seven and a quarter an hour. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you're working three jobs, that's not the dignity of work. Uh, when you are uh, when you don't have health care security, you don't have economic security. You look at one of the main reasons people file for bankruptcy is because they have a health care catastrophe. Thanks to Barack Obama and Democrats, thanks to LBJ with Medicare and mm-hmm. Medicaid, uh, so many more people in this country, our seniors and others, have that health care security. And when you don't have that security, uh, then you have a pit in your stomach. And this president has made life far more difficult. One good job should be enough. And yeah. so when you look, and then when you look at wage growth under this president, you know, if your if your wages go up by fifty cents, and your health care, and your housing, and your gasoline, and your cost of living goes up by a buck, you're not getting ahead. And, right. and Democrats want to make sure we get ahead. This president uh, wants to make sure that people like him get ahead. I think what people have seen, and again, getting this this Ukrainian example, but the the tax cut bill. What this is about, people want to know, is my president looking out for me and people like me? And I think the answer is becoming very, very clear. What is the one thing they've gotten done? It is a reckless tax cut for people like Donald Trump. They said it was going to be awesome for everybody. And that's turned out to be a bunch of malarkey. 
And this is why I believe in Ohio. This is why I believe that we can win states like Ohio, because we have, I think, the values that command the respect of the majority of folks there. We've got we're fighting for the issues people care about. And now he has a track record four years later before he could make these promises. And people wanted to shake things up. They wanted they wanted, uh, you know, an outsider and they voted for him. They wanted they thought uh, his uh, they, they thought his method of operation, shaking things up uh, would work for them. They, they wanted people who would who would improve their lives. And what they've gotten is just the opposite. Uh, they thought he would have their back. And it turns out he's had a knife in their back. Yep. And Democrats have your back on all the issues that matter most. So I know you have to go in a minute. I just would love to hear you ran, you know, you ran a, um, a very effective campaign for DNC chair after the 2016 election, brought the party together um, and uh, are doing some really innovative things here. And I'd love to, for you to share a couple different things that that you that you are doing as chair and the build and the DNC is doing to help invest um, in uh, our efforts to win back the White House in, in 2020? Well, when I ran for the DNC chair, uh, I did so because, number one, our democracy was on fire and it was a five-alarm blaze. And uh, number two, I knew that uh, the DNC needed work. It was, a you know, quite frankly, a fixer-upper. Uh, we, we really needed to up our game. And the fundamental job was to rebuild our infrastructure and rebuild trust. And rebuilding trust is a timeless journey. We've talked about the debate criteria and what we're doing in the primary process. We didn't get a chance to talk about our superdelegate reform. All of the things we have done have been designed to make sure we return power to the grassroots so that everybody understands that the Democratic Party is their party, fighting for your values, uh, making sure you not only have a seat at the table, but you have a voice at the table. And so the work that we've done since I've gotten here has been designed to make sure we're continuing to build that trust. The infrastructure of democracy uh, is critical, and, and this is fundamentally an infrastructure job. We, we 6,000 people ran for office last year and used the DNC voter file. So when that voter file is robust, people up and down the ballot win. Our mission is not simply to elect the president of the United States. Our mission is to elect Democrats up and down the ballot. And so we made dramatic investments in data and technology to modernize our data and technology so that candidates up and down the ballot have the tools to succeed. We made dramatic investments in organizing. We made dramatic investments in our state party partners. When our state party partners are strong, uh, we're all strong. We all rise and fall together. We all succeed when only when we all succeed. And I'm proud of the historic investments we made in 2018. We've never invested more in a midterm cycle than we invested in 2018, both in, uh, in um, the data and technology infrastructure, including but not limited, by the way, to cybersecurity infrastructure. We, you know, we've provided a lot of guidance to uh, presidential campaigns now on, on cybersecurity. We've got a team of people who do nothing but uh, looking at, they're looking every day at social media to identify uh, fake news sites, bots, working with the social media companies to get them taken down. We've gotten about a thousand sites taken down. And um, there's more to do because th the misinformation campaigns are going to be relentless in the run up to this. We've invested in organizing for 2020 through an initiative called Organizing Corps, which is uh, an initiative in which we are hiring, training, and deploying a thousand organizers in seven key battleground states. And these organizers, 76% uh, of our first cohort of 300, 
uh, were our people of color. And so this past summer, we knocked on about 20,000 doors in Milwaukee. Uh, four years ago, we knocked on closer to zero. Uh, 25,000 doors in Detroit. Uh, four years ago, closer to zero. Uh, because we need to make these investments now. And then we're going to hand these uh, really incredible... Uh, and by the way, 76% of our first cohort were uh, organizers of color. 95% were homegrown. So the Michiganders were... The organizers in Michigan were almost all from Michigan, and same thing in Wisconsin and elsewhere. So investing in organizing is critical. Investing in voter protection is absolutely critical. We have a DNC war room where we are going to these key battleground states like Ohio and localizing the impact of Trump. So when he goes to Youngstown to tout um, his alleged allegiance to workers, we go there and we're a truth squad. Uh, and we'll produce a 90-second digital ad that'll start with his promise. There'll never be a plant closure. And then turn the, the camera to a guy who worked at the Chevy plant in Lordstown. You know, my daddy worked there. My grandpa worked there. I used to work there. The Democrats saved the auto industry under Obama, and this president broke his promise. And, and we have... Um, we have data across the entire country, so we can tell the localized story of broken promises in New Hampshire or in Wisconsin to dairy farmers or in Arizona. Uh, wherever those promises were broken, our war room is enabling us to do this. So we're investing in this infrastructure. I was proud to invest in Virginia, New Jersey in 2017. Virginia, New Jersey taught us we could win again. Alabama, a month later, taught us we could win everywhere. Uh, Doug Jones is going to win again in 2020, and we're focused not only on the presidency, but helping to take back the Senate. We got three governor's races this, this cycle, and what all three candidates in, uh, in um, Louisiana, Kentucky, and Mississippi have in common is that they're ahead in the polls right now. And the reason they're winning is because they're talking about those critical issues, health care in Kentucky. Uh, the least popular governor in America is the Republican governor of Kentucky. And Andy Bashir is a spectacular candidate who is fighting for the issues that folks in Kentucky care about. Jim Hood in Mississippi has a great chance of uh, winning that race. He's the incumbent attorney general. In um, Louisiana, Governor John Bell Edwards, I think, is going to win going away in his reelection. And these are opportunities right now. We're going to take over the state house and the state senate in Virginia, and we're focused on those right now. I spent, I, w I did eight events in Virginia a couple days ago, up and down the state, uh, Hampton University, Virginia State University, getting folks out. Uh, when we lead with our values, when we organize everywhere, we organize early, we field great candidates, and we lead with our values. That's how we win. And so I. We're in an existential crisis. We started this show with um, talking about the moral fork in the road, the most dangerous present in American history. But I, I leave this show, and I want to make sure your listeners leave with optimism, because uh, you know, on the darkest nights, you often see the brightest stars. And, and in my two and a half years here on the job, I've seen stars emerge across America, stars that helped us take, uh, you know, 13 seats or 14 seats or whatever it was in the Virginia House of Delegates, stars like Doug Jones, stars, uh, you know, everywhere across this country who've stepped up. And that's what's happening now. Our democracy is on fire, but our participation levels in 2018, 2017, and this year have been off the charts. And that's because people understand now that democracy can't be a spectator sport. 
And uh, we need all hands on deck because this is a where were you moment. They want us to uh, not show up. They want immigrants to be fearful. That's why he does these ICE raids. That's why he still talks about census, even though he lost the case and should have lost the case. And when we get out there and talk to um, communities and build those relationships, that's how we win. That's why I think uh, I come to you with great optimism that we can take the presidency back, the Senate back, expand our margins in the House and expand our margins in state houses. And this is a critical election because we got the census coming up. So our next governor, uh, the governors that we elect in 2020 are going to be presiding over critical processes. And so, folks, uh, 404 days or thereabouts till the weekend. So uh, (laughs) every day, ask yourself, what would you do to help? That's what we got to do. And I just want to add one more thing, Tom, on um, everything you're doing here at the DNC. When Hillary Clinton officially became the nominee in 2016, she inherited essentially nothing from the DNC. You are creating quite the opposite. You're creating a turnkey operation for the nominee so that they will come in. They will inherit a very strong voter file. They will inherit a very strong team of professionals that will help um, elect hopefully the next democratic president of the United States. So Amen. thank you wow. for all of that. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Chairman Perez, bring in the heat. Thank you. Great <laughs> interview. Great. Thank interview. you so much. Thank you for everything you're doing. Keep thank up the you. great work. The Absolutely. two of you are doing. Absolutely. Uh, for my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod, I'm Doug Thornell. This has been uh, the electables and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>